the title of the message is in Christ you became dead to death in Christ you became dead to death so let me read to you from uh, Romans chapter 7 and verse 1 I'm going to read through uh, through 6 again same passage as last week but we're going to cover some different territory He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, my brethren, now here's the Christian application. Here's the gospel application. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. To him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So you and I wouldn't say you have been divorced from the law. I'm saying through Paul here, something other than divorce has separated you from the binding requirements of the law. And it's death. Your death through the body of Christ. And verses 5 and 6 help us. He explains why this needed to be so. He says, for when we were in the flesh, you could substitute that word flesh for, you could say, when we were unbelievers, when we were not born again. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So very, very briefly and and summarily, you became dead to the law through Christ. Old ground, we've, we've been there, we've covered that. You became dead through Christ to the law because if you wouldn't, you will die to death. Okay? If you don't die with Christ, you'll die to death. There's a easy fork in the road here, right? Verse 5 says, "For while you were in alive to the fret to the flesh, the 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 one path that all men had been on while you were alive in the flesh, your fruit was in verse 5 to death." Everybody is on this path to death. But now, the Christian who has found Christ and and seen the, the, the deadly peril of the path that leads to death, but now you have been delivered from the law. I I, I was contemplating the the law itself. The law's pursuit is like a bounty hunter. You remember those movies you probably saw when you were a kid when there's a bounty hunter after a bad guy? And and, and he's after him and he's not going to stop because he gets banked when he finally gets the bad guy. 
The law is like a bounty hunter. And what does it collect? What does it get? Death. But when the bounty hunter finds you dead to death, I just keep trying to help you picture what has happened. If you have been made dead to death, when the bounty hunter finds you, you're dead. There's nothing to collect. It's done. By Christ, if you are in Christ, the power of the law is spent. Isn't that a great way to the, the, the law's done with its power if you have died with Christ. The power of the law is spent. What is the power of the law? Death. It's spent if you're in Christ. You have been delivered, so you should serve the newness of the Spirit. Dead to death makes it so that you can be alive to Christ, and it's simple. I believe we understand this, at least in its most simple essence at this point. So now my next subheading is, happy is he who will die to sin. Happy is he who will die to sin. Christian faith is the spiritually sane person's response to sin. Faith in Christ is the spiritually sane person. Response to sin, isn't it? Isn't faith in Christ like a no-brainer when you consider the only alternative is eternal death? Faith in Christ absolves your guilt, imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, puts you on a course of useful, and here's one of the key words of the morning here, joyful service to the Lord. Useful and joyful service to the Lord. In your having died to death, you are no longer understand Romans 6 and 7 is taking great pains to make sure we understand that death to sin is a privilege. Death to sin is a great privilege because the Christian has been released from sin's rule. The Christian has been brought into this grace in which we now stand, which I think is the first line or two of chapter 5. So verse 4, verse 4 says, the one who died has been raised a servant. Use the word doulos, remember? You guys remember what doulos means? Slave. If you died to sin, you've been raised a slave to Christ. And, and I, I believe that the term is used a, a tiny bit, almost like a parable. The one who is dead to sin is now a bride to Christ. The one who died with sin is now in a, in a marriage bond with Christ. Christ the, the groom and the, and the born-again Christian wed, married. There's a there's definitely some parable um, elements to that picture there. Free from the law's condemnation of death. So free from being in the reign of where sin rules, free from that condemnation, and free in this realm to serve and be in Christ. So here's the questions I wanted to ask you. 
What does faith know that unbelief will not know? What does faith know? And the answers come out as we work through our message. What does faith know that unbelief will not and does not know? The second question, why does faith happily leave sin? And finally, why is the believer raised to new life in Christ bound in glad service to God and not a resentful slave? Third question is a little bit alongside. Sorry about that. Why does faith happily leave sin? And why is the believer raised to new life in Christ bound in glad service to God, not a resentful slave? So let me talk with you for a minute about sin's silent rule, and then we'll begin to work on the answers to that question here. In Galatians 5, 19 to 21, pretty uh, extensive, pretty um, normal New Testament list of sins. So Galatians 5, 19 says the works of the flesh are evidence. So here's some examples of, of what the New Testament highlights, brings, brings to light in terms of the, the sins Amen. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Lord Jesus talked about the actual adultery or the kind of adultery that, that you will be condemned with if, if you lust for a woman in your heart. Fornication, very, very similar to adultery. Uncleanness covers a broad, broad spectrum of sin. Lewdness, lewdness, crudeness, uh, coarseness, different uh, words you might use there. Perverseness. Idolatry, that's not simply the, the statue kind of idolatry, but any, any replacement of God's power or God's uh, greatness, and any, any replacement in your heart of where God goes for your hope, for your power, for your security, that's all idolatry if, if it's anything but God. Sorcery is the word pharmakia, in Greek, so sorcery is not necessarily narrowed to incantations and witchcraft, although it's certainly included there. Sorcery, pharmakia, is the use of drugs to, and on the one hand, to interact with that spirit world, and that, that's very common in the pagan religions, is the use of drugs to. Um, to, 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 to be able to comprehend what the spirit world would tell you or to show you what that spirit... So there's that aspect of, of paganism and the use of drugs. And then just the use of drugs, pharmakia. How, in, in what way do people use drugs to give themselves pleasure or to um, somehow replace God's power for them? So sorcery covers a broad spectrum of, of kinds of sin. Hatred is another one on the list. Contentions, so fightings, disagreements, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. Heresies is a, is a word that has to do with um, um, different different branches of beliefs. And, and it kind of stems from, in the Christian sense, an unwillingness to... Um, admit that there can only be one truth and to work out finding out what that one truth would be. Envy. Envy is on this list, which is a work of the flesh that's evident. Envy. Envy and murder right there next to each other. Drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
the word practice came up in Sunday school. The, 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 the word practice is a tense type of word. It's a person who is, is doing these things. The, the person who is involved in these things is, is the norm of their life is kind of the, uh, the, the indication, the, the meaning there. So here's a simple listing of sins. And, and the thing is, is that you and I rarely identify ourselves with any of these and so remember, that the heading we're working under here is called Sin's Silent Rule. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to help you understand the, the workings of sin in you. And it has a silent, uh, persuasive influence over men. And so when we look at this list of sins that you and I just read, and you'll read them in other places in the New Testament and, of course, in the Old Testament, we don't read them and feel like, oh, man, I am I'm just... I'm, I'm, I've got these sins on every front of my life. God must see a lot of wickedness in this person. When you're reading these lists, that's not our normal response to them. It's not the way we read it. But these lists are meant to sober you. These lists are meant to put light on, 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 on places in your heart where you become comfortable with sin. They're, they're meant to bring you to God in, in fresh acknowledgement of your sin nature, of the sinfulness that's in you. They're meant to bring you to him and say, oh Lord, I am a coveter. And, and, and covetousness is at work in me, Lord. I, I just, I saw it there in the list. And I, Lord, help me, forgive me, Lord. The, 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 the use of these things in the New Testament are for you to remain humble and dependent on the Lord. But it seems generally um, we, we think no shame. We feel no fear. And, and maybe in your mind you'll say something like, I'm, I'm glad that's something that I've moved on from. I'm, I'm glad that's something I don't really have to deal with anymore. We, we read these lists and in a weird way we can find comfort from them. And going, okay, good, I'm not like that. that. That makes me feel good. Now I know God is happy with me. If any lists of his laws, if any lists of the works of the flesh in the New Testament serve to comfort you, you're reading it in the wrong way. Remember the excoriations of, of Romans chapter 1 through 3 that lists the sins of the pagan world, lists the sins of the Jewish world, and then at, at chapter 3, all have sinned. It, it just lists all are guilty, all fall short of the glory of God. That's the point of God's listing sins in the Bible. They're not meant to comfort you. However, we can be exposed to them like this and not feel it. This is what I want you to realize. is It's normal for you and I to read a list like that and, and not have felt it at all. So, instead of being ashamed of, of various indications of how sin still works its sway on us, we... We don't realize that it's got this stealthy ability to be at work in you and leave you numb to its influence. As in, 
you don't realize that sin makes you comfortable with sin. You don't realize that sin helps you justify little compromises and little sins. You don't realize that sin is great at making you feel comfortable. Not with all of them. Because some things of sin, you would say, oh, that is horrible. And you are adamant that that, that, that is just disgusting and, and, and bad. There are some sins, though, that you're like, those are like the little ones. These are the less serious ones. And this is where I want you to see that it is quietly powerful. Sin is very stealthy in the way it works to work you. Okay? It's very often the silent persuader insulating the sinner from the sense of his guilt. Now that's an actually important concept here and I'm going to illustrate it. We're going to see how the Bible shows us this in really loud 3D here in a minute. But sin is able to work in such a way that you kind of go through it and you might feel it, but maybe just ever so softly. Maybe you see a really, really cool watch or a really, really awesome kitchen appliance or a really, really great tool and you think, wow, I really want one of those. And instead of being able to see covetousness in your heart, which the tool one is kind of where I could find this happening, right? I see this tool that I want. And, and, and maybe my wife or friend says, you, your, your little coveter is kind of picking up steam here. But my response is something along these lines. I say, well, I actually need it. And I'm free to have it. And, and so it could actually have been covetousness that, that turned my eye and my heart to this thing. But my defense is, is patting me against the threat. You see how it works? And this is what's going on. It's quiet. It's stealthy. And it's powerful. This is how sin is at work in the hearts and minds of men. And one of the great things that should be happening to you when we read lists of sins is that the word of God should expose you to your bankruptcy. You are not a righteous and a great person. The scripture should expose you as a needy person. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Because the poor in spirit are the ones who will turn to him and say, Lord, I need righteousness. I need you to save me. The rich in spirit are never wrong in any way. And so they don't need a savior. And so when we get into this idea of sin's silent rule, now I want to show it to you illustrated. The Lord told stories. The, The Lord gave us these great stories so that you could... Get down a little bit more in the in the depths of seeing how these things work. And this is a great one. We've been here before in Luke 15, but go to Luke 15:11. We're going to look at some some high points in the in, in the story of the prodigal son. We're not going to hit it all. We're just going to hit some things that I, I hope are really going to prick your thinking here. Luke 15. Luke 15. Listen to the Lord exposing 
men. There are two men here in this story, two kinds of sinners, and God. God is another figure in the the story. There's only three characters here, really. So let me read you verse 11 and 12. The Lord telling the story, he says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Just the two verses. This first son, the young son, seems to be the very worst at first. The first time you read this parable and and, and worked through it, you thought, wow, that kid had some gall to ask his dad for the inheritance before he, he was even dead. And you, if you were like me, would have been identifying with the brother who's a little bit indignant that the foolish, jerk, greedy brother wants all this money to squander. This, this first son I'm going to call Prince Shameless. Prince Shameless. He, he's, a, he's a son of the king. That's why I'm calling him Prince. Prince Shameless is a picture of of a man without law and morals, the way you and I would 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 agree was was proper legal and and moral respect. So Prince Shameless. How can Shameless act so shamefully? And this is where I want you to think about this silent power of sin. How does sin work and how does shameless act so shameless. He's also a picture of of what we call in more theological words, antinomian. The person with no law. The person who has no respect for law. How can he act like this? Well, sin helps him want what he wants. He wants what he wants. Sin helps him justify Wanting what he wants. He can act shamefully because sin has insulated him from many of you. Act the way you do on a day-to-day basis because if you didn't, you would get shamed. People would say something to you that would make you feel embarrassed. You don't take cuts in a grocery store so that you can check out in front of everybody Maybe because you'd be embarrassed of what people would say to you in line, right? Some people don't care. Have you ever been at the grocery store and someone just kind of comes right up and steps in front of everybody and puts their stuff in there? It happens every now and then. Happened to me at a bank once in Thailand. I was so appalled that it was obviously a very wealthy person and they came up and stepped in front of three or four of us and and the, the teller didn't even care. The teller let them do their thing. How can somebody act so shameless? Do you, do you think they feel no shame or have they somehow become insulated to it? Has something happened in their mind and in their heart that what is normally shameful isn't actually feel like shame to them anymore? That's what's happened. I'm telling you that's what's happened. Prince Shameless has had his heart so formed and, and, and so corrupted that what many people feel fairly naturally, he doesn't feel. Sin has isolated him from feeling what would have normally prevented 
him from doing that. It actually sin helped him appreciate and long for the reward of what he's seeking. Sin, sin counsels him to ignore those who are offended by him. And sin has probably even helped him despise those who look down on him for acting that way. Sin, sin has been at work doing all this stuff. He hates them because they, they think he doesn't deserve what he's pursuing. Sin helps you love you. Sin helps you love you. Sin helps you reward you. That's why the idea of self-esteem is such a non-Christian idea, isn't it? Self-esteem. So there's, there's Prince Shameless. Verses 27 to 30 talk about the other son. Um, go all the way down to 27 here. We're obviously skipping lots here, right? So look down there, verse 27, though. And this is still Luke 15. Older brother. No, I don't think it's, it's dad. And he said to him, your brother has come. Father, speaking to Prince Legal, your brother has come. And because... He has received him safe and sound. Your father has killed a fatted calf. But he was angry and wouldn't go in. And therefore his father comes out and pleads with him. So he answered again, said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. This is a man, he serves sin in a totally different way. And legal hates shameless. He hates him. Now, this, this man fits in the category of legalist. Legalist hates Shameless, hates him for his greed, hates him for his shameless request that dishonors the father while he himself is able to dishonor the father in his own way, as is evident in the story. But he despises shameless for his dishonor to the father. He also, I believe, resents the loss of money that he would have figured out how to make his if the younger brother didn't squander it away. He resents the financial losses. So sin is at work in this man's life, in this man's head and his heart, in a totally different way than the younger brother. It's not working out the same thought processes. He respects the rules. The younger doesn't. But while respecting the rules, he is still the main need on the stage. This person is serving rules. He's serving law, expecting to be rewarded for it, expecting to be acknowledged for it. The Lord Jesus said on multiple occasions, he quoted from Hosea 6 and verse 6. And when the Lord quoted this, he would say to a follower, he would say, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
The older brother had no conception whatsoever of having any pity or compassion for the younger brother. Look at verse 29, and and we'll listen to him again, how he justifies his anger and his disdain while confessing that his obedience deserved at least his own barbecue feast. Verse 29, he answered, said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I made make merry with my friends. What's all of his labor for? What's all of his service for? He wants to be recognized. He wants to be rewarded. It's about him, and he feels sorry for himself. He's exalting himself here. He pities himself here. He makes his own case of his own worthiness by the rules, by the books. And both of these two sons are ruled by sin. It's very, very evident. They're they're both obsessed with their self. They're both numb from their father's ways. These are are the greatest indications of, of their being ruled by sin is their love of self and their ignorance of their father's ways and their father's uh, priorities of things. Both of these sons, if we think of them for a moment in, in what we've been studying in Romans chapter 7, both of these sons have a fruit that result from their lives. If, if you look at the whole scope of the younger versus the, the older, it's different. They go about it in a different way, but they've, they've been doing and they do according to a certain formula principles that are governing their hearts and their ambitions. And so there is a fruit resulting from the lives of these two men. And they're both called fruits of unrighteousness, but both of them find nothing wrong with their ways. And this is such a powerful illustration of of the quiet authority of sin in the heart of a man or in the heart of a woman. In other words, they don't feel or sense that they are under the rule of sin. They do what they do because it seems like the right thing to do. That's how crafty and stealthy sin is in the heart and the mind of the sinner. Do you see that? Really important for you to see this. In this parable, these men aren't fighting their conscience. These men are doing what they do, just like the way a a stream runs down through the riverbed. That's why they do what they do. They just do it. Gravity is at work on them. And, and, And it's sin that loves itself. They feel their ways are justified. You see that? They feel their ways are justified. That means they feel their ways are right. If somebody charged the older or the younger with their wrong, they would defend it. They would say, this is why I do it like this. This is why I think this. They're justified in their own hearts and in their own minds. Neither would say that sin was leading them, but it is this sin. It is sin, their invisible king, who will kill them. If they go to the end of their days under the rule of that, it will take them to their death. You take that to the bank. It's a fact. These men are under the rule and the tyranny of sin. Although it just looks drastically different in both of their lives, doesn't it? 
So Romans 6.16 is talking just about this. Romans 6.16, we'll be back here in, uh, in this passage here in Luke 15 in a second. I'm going to show you some great applications here. But Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves? whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. These two men are slaves. You know, the, the picture I gave you of water flowing down a creek bed, if, if, if the water in the creek bed doesn't want to be in the creek bed, it wants to go to another one, can it? It, it can't. It's literally under the pressure of gravity and, it, and it's enslaved by the low spot on the ground. Right? These men are just acting the way men do under the rule of sin. That's what you should see in this parable. They're enslaved by their sin. And Romans 6.16 teaches us that very thing. Verse 21, same chapter. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Now that's a question for a Christian. If one of these two men in the parable gets saved, this question applies to them. If one of these two men is saved, and then we ask him this question, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? Prince shameless? Prince legal? What things did you have when you were a servant of sin? And they would look back on that and they would say, oh, my, my, my dark, selfish heart, my greedy heart, my loveless heart, it's all shameful. My, my actual disregard and, and no love for my father. That's how they would respond to this question. They would see that sin had enslaved them and whatever sin produces in a man's life when he's a slave to sin produces shame when, 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 when the true perspective Heaven and earth is brought into right perspective. This person looks at that and goes, it was all shame. So Christians are the ones who begin to detect the conniving and sly ways of sin. And Christians can see what sin has been doing. Sin seduces the rich materialist. It seduces the, the sensual It seduces the lazy and the ignorant. Remember, ignorance is a sin. Man, that's a ignorance is a sin. Remember, we're not supposed to comfort ourselves with the law. We're supposed to say, yeah, Lord, you put your finger on me. Sin is so quietly and cleverly and convincingly leading sinners to death. That's the thing that kind of stuns me in this parable is neither of these boys are even a little bit aware that they're on their way to death. So go back to Luke 15 with me. We're going to look at verse 17. Luke 15. <clears throat> Luke 15 speaks about the younger son. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
and he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. What a beautiful, great couple of lines here. So we're going to answer the questions that I asked you a couple minutes ago. We can ask the question, what does faith know? I asked you that, you know, what does is, what is faith know that unbelief doesn't know? Well, this son, he comes to himself. That, that, that's, that's a way of, of saying that he actually began to realize that he had been living a lecherous life. A sinful life, a wasteful life. He began to come to himself. He began to understand that he was actually living under the rule of sin. He was living within the tyranny of sin. So he comes to himself and he admits to himself first. He goes, you know, everybody in my father's house is way better off than me. All of those people are way better off than me. His, his senses are making this comparison. This is a two-way response. So hear this, hear this part carefully. He's responding to what he thinks about sin and the way he's been living. He's responding to sin and he's responding to his father and his father's house. He's actually being repulsed from sin and what sin has done to him. And he's being drawn to his father's house of where it is great and where it is good. Those two things are happening in his initial coming to himself. What does faith know? Faith knows that sin is destructive. It's corrupting. It is ruining. It is loss. It is deceitful. That's what sin knows. Sin knows God's house is a great house. God's ways are good ways. His place is a pleasant place. This is what sin knows. You see, it's 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 a knowing of the wicked and the dark, and it's a knowing of the light and the right. He immediately knows he needs to repent to his father. He says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Sinning against heaven means there isn't a, a, a thing anywhere that doesn't know my sin. It's so obvious now. Everybody, everything knows my sinful life. I've sinned against heaven and the father. And the father is the worst one Offended. So notice here that repentance so far begins in the mind. The mind knows the offenses that it has made to the world. When, when, when you live a prodigal life to the world, are you showing the world that you have any honor or integrity or glory to God when you live like that? No. So he knows that his life has been a testimony that's a blasphemous life. My life shows a carelessness to God, a godlessness to God. All this is taking place in his mind. And so he's beginning to reverse from sin and he is beginning to be drawn to God himself. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, this is really a wonderful thing. This is the first time he's ever seen his father as great. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Before, he could care less if his father was great or not great. He knew his father was rich. But now he says, my father is a great man, and I am so low. I am such a loser. 
that I don't even deserve to be on his property. There's no way I could ever be called his son. He is such a great man. But listen to how he's thinking. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's never, ever seen his father great before. He's never seen himself so low. But this is his first moment of sensible thinking in his whole life. These are the first thoughts of truth he's ever had. He sees what sin has done to him. I thought this was in. He's seen what sin has done to de-son him. Look at what sin has done to me to make me so unlike my father. I, I just, I don't even be, deserve to be called a son. Look at what sin has done to me. He sees himself in no status. I say that because as he's contemplating what it would mean to go back to his father, he doesn't. He doesn't see himself getting the son's room, the son's servants, the son's privileges. What does he see himself? He sees himself having a servant's job. He says, I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to be a day laborer. I'll take whatever he gives me, and I don't even care. Whatever he is willing to give me, I am glad to have it. Why? Because he is a great father. He is a good father. I would rather be with the great father than anywhere else is what's going on in his head and in his heart. He's prepared for simple and hard living. He knows that the worst favor and help from his father is better than sin's best. The worst thing that father would do is way better. Then sin's best. Isn't that a great place for a man to be as he is coming to grips with what sin has done to him in his life? When you properly understand what sin has been doing to you, how sin has treated you, what sin will ultimately give you, this is the kind of thoughts that are going through your head. He also sees the father as one that can be pled with. He, he sees the father as one he can actually go back with and plea with, and he expects, he hopes to find mercy. Isn't that a, an amazing thing? This great man, father, that, that is powerful and can help him, he isn't afraid to not go to. Isn't that a great truth? God may be feared. He may be feared. So that we can, we can go to him. You know, if, 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 if he was a cruel God, nobody would ever even go to him and say sorry. But he's not. He sees the Father as one he can plead with. He's not without hope because he knows the Father's generous nature. He knows the Father's forgiving nature. Are you starting to see what faith knows? What does faith know? What moves the believer away from sin and, and toward God? For the first time ever in his life, he consoles himself with the hope that he might be a servant this is the first time he's ever thought, you know, if I was just a servant, my father, life is going to be good. This is the first time he has ever thought being a servant for someone else would be a great option in his life. He's never thought that before. He actually anticipates having peace and maybe joy while he's serving 
his great and merciful Father. So we'll look at just a couple more lines here in verses 20 and 24 with a subheading of dead to sin and alive to God. Look at what happens there in verse 20. He rose and he came to his father. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He actually said it with his mouth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So here we actually see a person who's become born again and a person who is dead to sin and alive to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a great picture of what we've been studying in Romans 6 and 7? He's now dead to sin and he's alive to the Father. What a great picture. The son confesses with his mouth. You know, sometimes when you have decided you're going to say you're sorry to somebody and and they're kind of eager to forgive you, you decide that you're not even going to say it because it's still too embarrassing for you, may I encourage you to please always say you're sorry. Always offer your convictions, your, your repentances to the Lord with your mouth. Say them. He runs from sin as strongly as he runs to his father. You see how he's left sin. He's no longer there anymore. He's gone to his father and to his father's place, and he wants his father's acceptance and forgiveness, and he wants his father's care, and he discovers that his father is very, very generously forgiving. He finds that his father is eagerly waiting to love him and to care for him. This is my son, and he was dead, and he's now alive, the father says. And so let's let's think back into Romans 6 and 7 again, just for a moment. And when the apostle is writing about those who have come to faith in Christ, and he asks that question that some are asking, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin? Shall, shall the son who has come to his Senses who has died to sin and been made alive to his father, should, should that person return to his sin so that the grace of the father might somehow be magnified again and, and re-displayed again? Wouldn't that just be a horrendously stupid, awful thing for him to do? The answer is no. But do you see now, do you see how sin holds a man captive? Do you see how sin manipulates and corrupts and destroys all the way to death unless... Unless that person comes to himself the way the, the shameless comes. He comes to himself. And he comes to repentance. He comes to understand the sinfulness of sin. So I'll ask you the question, Romans 6, 6 is the last verse of the passage we've been studying so as you think about being raised with Christ, as you think about being raised a servant or a slave to be made useful to, to produce fruit for God, I want to ask you, whose servant will you be? And that verse, Romans 6, 6 says, Now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This isn't how you get saved. Salvation comes when you believe Christ. Believing in the death and resurrection of the Christ in the place of you, the sinner. 
The believer is the one who's being told, do not serve sin. Do not be a servant of sin. Romans 6, 6, we have now been delivered. It's taken place. You've been delivered from the rule of sin who will rule you to death, who will reign to death unless you come to Christ. So death to sin is necessary because of what it does. Death to sin is necessary because it is a, a deceiver. It, 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 its goal is to produce corruption and death. You shouldn't resent being told that you've died to sin and you've been raised to Christ. You should say hallelujah. It rules and it kills. Its authority over men ends legally when they have become joined to Christ. The death with Christ annuls the law's right to have you. Do you see that? The law has the right because every single one of you is a sinner. And the, the, the payment of the sin is your life. The law must have its right. But if you are joined to Christ, then it has had it. You are dead with Christ. And you are raised a servant to Christ. So when you turn to Christ, did you leave sin? So where you can do some thinking in your heart. Did you leave sin like the prodigal son did? Do you want to leave sin and have life in Christ? It's actually easy to do. You do what the son did. You do what that son did. You acknowledge your sin. You realize what sin has done to you. You realize how sin has been rewarding you. And you turn to God in shame of your sin. And you prepare your confession for the Lord. If you've turned to Christ, then you've put your back to sin. Remember, all these responses to sin that we talked about there are a turning away from sin and, and looking to and hoping in and reckoning on. A person who's come to Christ has turned his back to sin. And remember that a servant in the house of God, a servant, a doorman, one of the, one of the Proverbs says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. One day in your house is better than a thousand elsewhere. It's another passage. It says, one day in your house, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a servant in God's house than a rich man in a house of sin, wouldn't you? Polishing boots, shoveling cow manure, digging irrigation ditches, whatever. I wouldn't care. For the rest of eternity, I would rather be that man in the house of God than a king under the tyranny of sin. If you believe that Christ is the Savior and you put your trust in Him, but you're weak and you struggle against sin, and, and you may be, you need to realize that this struggle against sin begins on the day that you turn to Christ. And you and I are going to be taught further here in the book of Romans. What is this struggle against sin? How do you do it? Sin isn't going to send the Christian to hell Sin is going to ruin the Christian witness. Sin is going to de deteriorate the, 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 the glory of the name of Christ. Sin is going to corrupt your fruitfulness in the house of God. And so this is why we 
are learning to turn from sin and why we're learning to hate sin. So you need to learn how to fight sin by faith. You need to learn how to resist sin. It doesn't like you. It hates you. It's Satan's way of, 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 of tempting men and drawing them away from Christ and his church. You need to stick to Christ the way an apprentice soldier sticks by the side of a grown and mature and a seasoned soldier. You need to stick close to Christ. You need to know how Christian armor is worn. You need to remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, it says in Romans chapter 10. If faith is weak and if faith is shallow, you need to be under the preaching of the Word of God. You need to be Bible readers. Not say that you're Bible readers. Not plan on being Bible readers someday. You need to be Bible readers. This is called the sword of the Spirit. And a person who believes that we are engaged in a struggle against sin doesn't do it without a sword of the Spirit. You need to learn how to feed and guard your heart. Feed your heart, guard your heart. You need to be at your church and you need to be listening to preaching. And you need to learn to fix your eyes on Christ. Religion can be super religious and super diligent and all this stuff I'm talking about. But if all of this stuff is keeping your heart warm to Christ, keeping your heart strong in your building of substance and hope in Christ, evidence of things hoped for, substance of things not seen. It's built on the word of God. Faith is real stuff in every day of your life. It's how you resist sin by the Spirit. You'll remember in Matthew 21, chapter 28, there were two sons. The Lord Jesus told this story. He says, there was a father who gave instructions to two sons. This son said, yeah, I'll do it. Turn with me. Matthew 21, verse 28. The written word is always more powerful than the revised version coming out of Mike's mouth. Matthew 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first, he said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. What is with these sons who have the gall to just be so shameless? But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? There are two kinds of men on planet Earth. Some men love the will of the father. And come to the father in the father's way by the blood of Christ, right? There's one way to come to God the father and have hope of eternal life and it's by the blood of Christ. Many people, many people respond positively and they, they say they will do what the Father says and asks, but they don't. 
They won't do it. Which son are you? And you've been waiting for years to say, yeah, you know what? i got to follow the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Great God, we thank you and praise you for the death of Christ, which broke the bond and tyranny of sin. And we praise you that you have given the opportunity of eternal life by the resurrection of Christ. Oh, Lord. We love you and we pray you would make our hearts soft, willing servants, Lord. How we praise you for your great grace, the great riches and the great ways of your household, Lord. We love it and we praise you. In the name of the Son.